So we want to begin by reading Psalm 52. Uh, but a- as we read it, uh, we will we'll discuss it. I-, I want you to be thinking about how we will, Lord willing, end it as we will talk about what this shows us about Jesus. Because with some Psalms, that's easier than others. And this is not one where that is particularly easy. But in Psalm 52, the heading is, For the choir director, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Okay, let's first of all discuss the heading. Let me say something I may not have said very well Sunday night in the sermon, so let me repeat it. It is generally regarded by writers on the book of Psalms, even writers that we would regard as conservative, to kind of discount the headings of the Psalms. I think we should take the Psalms' headings seriously. Now, I haven't always felt that way because, you know, sometimes I was just influenced by what I was reading and just thought maybe we shouldn't. But when the implications of what I'm about to say dawned on me, I thought this was pretty profound. When you look at Psalm 18, it is a psalm that has a heading, a rather extensive heading. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are almost word for word. If you compare 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, it is really striking to see the similarities. But this is the thing that made me think I need to take headings seriously. The heading... The heading of Psalm 18 is part of the text of 2 Samuel 22. What's in the heading in Psalm 18 is 2 Samuel 22 verse 1. And so they are all just a verse 
throughout that psalm. 2 Samuel 22 is one more verse than Psalm 18 does. But they are elsewhere almost verbatim. Now those, those headings were there as long as we know of. The earliest manuscripts of the book of Psalms we have, they are present. They gave some technical musical terms so that when the Greek translation was made, they didn't even know what those terms meant. And they just, sometimes they, it was guesswork. But the point is, there's no reason to disregard these titles. Now, some people say, first of all, I want to discuss with that background, we're going to encounter some Psalms which, dis, which discuss specific moments in David's life and tie these Psalms with specific moments in David's life. And I want us to see how they fit. This psalm is written in connection with Doeg the Edomite who came and told Saul, David, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, look at 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. In 1 Samuel 21... David is on the run from Saul. Most people in the land are not aware of that yet. But David is on the run from Saul. Jonathan has given a message to him and he has taken off. He comes to Ahimelech the priest. He asks Ahimelech, he tells Ahimelech that he is on a secret mission from the king. He said, do you have any bread here? He says, there's no ordinary bread, only the consecrated bread. As long as the men have kept themselves from women. He said, the men are always holy when they set out on a journey like this. How much more so today? Verse 7. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Not only does David ask for food, but David says, I don't have a weapon, I don't have a sword, I don't have a spear. And he said, do you have anything? And they said, well, here is the sword of Goliath. David says, there is none like it. Go to 1 Samuel 22. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning with verse 6, Saul is complaining, everybody's against me. Nobody's on my side. The son of Jesse starts a conspiracy against me. He's trying to kill me, and none of you tell me about it. Well, who speaks up but the trustworthy Doeg the Edomite, who says in verse 9, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidab. And he says, uh, Ahimelech gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath. Saul goes there to the city of Nob. When he goes to the city of Nob, he inquires of Ahimelech. He puts him... Um, under the hot, he puts him on the hot seat, asks him questions. Why are you conspiring against me? And he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Don't accuse me of any kind of wrongdoing. Saul tells his servants, kill the priest. Did they do it? No. But who does it? 
Doeg the Edomite. In verse 18, the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Doeg kills 85 priests, Ahimelech and his family. I also want you to notice in verse 19, he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen and donkeys and sheep. He struck them with the edge of the sword. What is so striking about the language of verse 19? When God told him to do that to the Amalekites, he didn't. But he takes it on himself to destroy this city of innocent people after falsely accusing these priests. Sad. Sad. Now, you might look at Psalm 52, as some writers do, and say... It's not a perfect fit between Doeg and this psalm. Um, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but even if it's not a perfect fit, if it's not a perfect fit and you don't naturally think of Doeg reading Psalm 52, why the title? I mean, doesn't that in a way show that you should take the title seriously, that maybe that title's original because it wouldn't have just been made up in place there. Do you all have any questions right there? We don't always spend that much time in the introduction, but any any question there? This is one of 13 or 14 psalms. There's a question about one of them that give historical historic situations in the life of David. But I would say, and let me ask you if this reminds you of another psalm. I would say that Psalm 52 sets before us the way of life and death, the way of blessing and the way of cursing. It shows us the contrasting paths of the wicked and the righteous. Have we studied any other psalm that does that? David, you're shaking your head. Yeah, trying to think of which one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know it does, but I don't know which one. John? Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the main one I was thinking about. Um, and Psalm 36 does some of this too. And I'm sure there are others that David's thinking about and maybe he'll bring out for us in a moment. But, but, um, but, but my point is, you know, this is this is not an uncommon picture, but Psalm one right off the bat did that, and we're going to find even there's a comparison between Psalm one, the righteous. How is the righteous described in Psalm one? Like a tree, like a tree planted by the rivers. It brings forth its fruit in its season, and whatever it does, it prospers. Look at verse eight of Psalm fifty-two. The similarity, isn't it? He says, "I am like a green olive tree." In the house of my God. Okay. Very good. So, why? 
Sometimes when a psalm begins with why, the question is to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In psalms of that nature. But here the why is addressed not to God, but the, the why is addressed to the evil man. Why do you boast in evil? Now, the word boast, the word boast used here, it is used in the Old Testament. This this particular word used in the Old Testament. I apologize. I think I have a number. Yeah, 165. 165 times in the Old Testament. Over half are in the Psalms. Over half of them are in the Psalms. Now, there are, and I counted this twice, I may have missed a little something, but I got the same number two, 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 two times. It's 37 times in Psalms 145 to 150 alone. 37 times. There it is not translated boast, but it is translated praise. Usually this is translated praise. And let me just ask you a question. I bet you're going to get this right. Usually in the psalm, especially in Psalms 145 to 150, who would be the object of this particular verb, praise? God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. And so a word that is often used to describe the righteous and how they praise God or how they boast in God is here used to describe how the evil man, the wicked man, boasts, praises evil. This is his joy. This is what he finds celebration in. Why do you boast in evil? Oh, mighty man. And the word mighty man seems to be used here sarcastically. It is often used of a heroic warrior who shows great feats in battle. But does it really apply to Doeg who has killed 85 unarmed priests? doesn't apply to him. It is also used with this kind of sarcasm in Isaiah 5 and verse 22. In Isaiah 5 verse 22, Woe to you who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in strong drink. Oh, you're heroes, you're mighty men in drinking. Isaiah 5 verse 22. But here, why do you boast in evil? Almighty man. Now, some of your versions at the end of verse 1 probably have something different. The New American Standard has, Why do you boast in evil, Almighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. What do your other versions have if it is significantly different right there? Maybe you don't have anything different. This is a 
verse that's going to be largely debated in commentaries. John, you have something different. The NIV says, um, why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Okay, so what the NIV does is makes this a continuation of the description of the wicked. The New American Standard contrasts this more with God's loving kindness. There, the thing is, there is difference in the way the Hebrew text goes and the way the Greek text goes, our oldest Greek text, and our oldest Syriac text. They all go in a slightly different direction, and therefore the translation differs. I don't have to get into which of those is right and, and wouldn't be uh, wouldn't uh, be able to give you a, a very detailed uh, argument as to favoring one over the other anyway. But I just want you to know when you see a translation like that, why the difference? I just that's the main point. But we're gonna follow the he, the New American Standard more closely follows the Hebrew text, and what it does is it makes the contrast from the very beginning, the contrast between the wicked and God's loving kindness. The character of God. It draws that contrast from the very beginning. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Now, as he continues this description of the wicked, and notice he continues this description in second person. He's talking, it's almost as if he's talking directly to them. You boast in evil, O mighty men. In verse 2, your tongue devises destruction. In verse 3, you love evil more than good. In verse 4, you love all words that devour. The wicked person has a tongue that is that ought to be registered because it is a lethal weapon. It is a dangerous weapon with which he does great destruction. Now, the old saying, not in the Bible, but it's been around almost as long, sticks and stones will never... Uh, no, wait, 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 wait. I gotta, I gotta get it down. Yeah, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And how many of you ever learned that in school? You know, I mean, you know, we we learned that in school. Sometimes we used it to protect ourselves against harsh words. Sometimes others used it to protect themselves against us. But but uh, nonetheless, is that true? In words can do all kinds of damage. The tongue is compared to a razor that cuts and dices and slices. And they use words that are, that devour. Some verse 4 talks, verse 4 says your words devour. Sometimes we talk about eating our words and that's a valid expression. 
sometimes. We have to eat our words. But the Bible also talks about the words of others that eat us. You love all words that devour. I just want us to look at several psalms briefly through this section, just a couple of verses from them, that carry that same kind of idea that the tongue can be a deadly, deadly weapon. In Psalm 55, verse 21, Psalm 55, verse 21, His speech is smoother than butter, but his word, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they are drawn swords. So there in Psalm 55, 21, words are compared to drawn swords. Look at Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongues are a sharp sword. Psalm 59 verse 7. Psalm 59 verse 7. Behold they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say... Who knows? And then Psalm 64, 3 and 4. Psalm 64, 3 and 4. Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They've aimed bitter speech as their arrows to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. not asking this sarcastically. I ask this realistically. Has there been anyone here who has ever had the misfortune of being in the presence of someone who was killed or murdered? I mean, someone, you're there and they are killed or murdered while you are there. Has anyone ever experienced Has anyone ever seen in your presence someone cut apart with a tongue in which the sword was used as a razor? Let me just say it this way. Who hasn't experienced that or seen that? And what church is there? where that hasn't happened. So which is more prevalent? I just saw in the news there was a school shooting this day. Maybe many of you know more about it than I do. Horrible thing. Horrible thing. And yet that is much rarer than this type of behavior. And this is how the wicked person is described. Now, Doeg the Edomite did a lot of damage with his sword as he drew that sword and he killed 85 priests. He did a lot of damage with 
the sword, but yet apparently he did more damage than that with his tongue like a sharp razor and his words that devour. And so that teaches us to be careful, to be so careful about our words. As Proverbs Proverbs says it this way. Um, in Proverbs 18 verse 21 death and life are in the power of the tongue death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit now you see people who are Christians who are very well liked who are very popular I'm saying that not in the sense that they're running for it not in the sense that they're campaigning for it, but but they are usually well respected. It's usually someone who knows how to use their tongue well to build up, to strengthen, to encourage. They are using their tongue for life, but others use it for death. And so the wicked person is characterized by a misuse of his tongue. May we never fall into that description. Notice also a couple of other things. He is described in verse 1 as an evil man. Or why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? And then in verse 3 the word evil is used again. You love evil more than good. But notice the word love is used both in verse 3 and in verse 4. In verse 3 you love evil more than good falsehood more than speaking what's right in verse 4 you love all the words that devour to love good and hate evil is a highest moral ideal Amos 5 and verse 15 but here you see this is the opposite you love evil more than good as one writer says Uh, One writer says he hates, he loves everything uh, that is perverse, everything that is twisted, everything that's perverted, everything that's corrupt. What we love says something about us, and what we love determines what we say. Any questions there, or thoughts there? In a way, this is the key point of the psalm. It's right in the middle of the psalm. But it bridges these two gaps between the wicked and the righteous. And it demonstrates to us that God will bring down this evil man who uses his tongue as a weapon to destroy. Do you think Doeg's words were deceptive? Was he trying to lead Saul uh, in a in a in a direction with what he said? Well, obviously Saul was already going down that path of accusing David falsely, but Doeg's words did play into it, 
And, and David and Ahimelech was completely innocent in all this ordeal. I mean, after all, he appeals to the fact David is your son-in-law. David is the commander of your forces. David is uh, all of these things. I have inquired of the Lord of him in the past. Why would I think that he is trying to uh, lead a rebellion against you? And of course, we know it's not true from the biblical story. It was the opposite. Saul cannot get his mind off of David, and he's obsessed with destroying David. So I think that they are deceitful, and some writers have questioned that. I think they're deceitful in that they play into Saul's fears, and they're right there saying, oh yes, David's against you, and Ahimelech is conspiring too. Ahimelech led Saul the horse to the water. Yes. Yeah. yes. He didn't make him drink, but he, he <laughs> let him there. Well, he, he, he's, he's agging it on because, as, as Saul said in this, he says, you Benjamites. Now, apparently those so closely associated with him were from the tribe of Benjamin. He said, do you think the son of Jesse is going to give you anything when he gets to be king? He gets to be king. You're not going to get to be in the cabinet. So you better... And it, it's, it's self-interest, too, that leads them to act that way. Um, any more thoughts about Doeg or um, I do have to say Doeg may be forgotten if it wasn't for this Psalm 2 calling attention to I don't know if that's completely true because he certainly is an evil man there in Psalm or in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 but God is going to deal with Doeg, who is representative of all people who are evil. And what is done in verse 5 is God uses, and I know that I am greatly limited on my board (laughs) by this, but but here in verse 5, there are four verbs used to describe God's, I'm going to say, violent judgment on the wicked. The wicked is running his mouth, slinging his um, tongue that is so dangerous, destroying anyone in its path, stirring up animosities, um, and you think about a tongue leads to the death of these 85 priests. And that's pretty serious, a serious damage that the tongue can do. But God will uh, destroy them. The verbs in the New American Standard that God will break you down forever. God will snatch you up. God will tear you away. God will uproot. So these are the four verbs in verse 5. God will break you down. God will snatch you up. He will uproot you. And what was the fourth one? Tear you away. Tear tear you away. Okay. Did I go in the right order? No, that's not. Okay, I did go in the right order. 
Okay. Can we switch the numbers? <laughs> <laughs> is Caraway three? Yes, sir. Yes. Caraway's three. Oh, and Uproot is four. Okay? One, two, four, and three, just like you learned <laughs> in school. And, but um, these verbs that describe judgment on the wicked, um, Bob, Deuteronomy. When Israel goes into the land and they see the idols in the Asherim, what are they told to do? Eradicate it. Okay, eradicate them or break them down. Same word. It's the same word. You wanted that in context. Okay. <laughs> it's the same word used. The same word used here for God breaking down the wicked is the word that is often used in the Old Testament for breaking down idols, for tearing down idols. So it's used right here in this passage. God will break you down forever. Now, the verb uh, snatched up, snatched up, this verb is only found four times in the Old Testament. And one of them is uh, in Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? But it's used in that context. The next word, tear away, is only used four times as well. And one of those passages is Proverbs 2 and verse 22, where the wicked will be uprooted from the land. Um, it, it, so this tear away can also be translated uprooted. But then the final word, uh, uprooted, that is used is used in uh, passages like Jeremiah 12, And verse 2, where uh, God says, You planted them, they have taken root, they grow, they have produced fruit, you are near to their lips, but far from their mind. Hmm. It it can be used for planting and uprooting. But when you think uprooting, what do you think of there? I mean... Pulling weeds. Pulling weeds. It is, that's my point, and some of you have been doing some of that today, uh, but that is an agricultural term, isn't it? That's an agri- The Bible is full of agricultural illustrations. Now the reason I'm calling attention to this is because this in verse 5 about uprooting the wicked pulling them up from the ground, this is going to be a complete contrast with verse 8 in what he said about the righteous. While God uproots the wicked from the land of the living, God is going to plant the righteous like a green olive tree in the house of God. So, what the Bible is showing here is this path of wickedness is ultimately that plant is going to be uprooted. Remember Jesus said, every plant my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. In Matthew chapter 15 verse 13, the wicked will be uprooted. The righteous will be planted and they will flourish 
in the land. So it uses these agricultural illustrations to draw a strong contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it uses these four verbs, not in the precise order, but it uses these four verbs to stress that God will bring down the wicked. Again, He is doing what so much of the Bible does. He is setting before us life and death, blessing and cursing, and appealing to us. Choose life. The way of the wicked is the way to be brought down, snatched up, torn away, and uprooted. That's where the path will lead if you choose wickedness. But there's a contrast to that. The righteous are going to be center stage in verses nine through six through nine. And in verse six, the righteous will see and fear. The righteous is going to see this judgment on the wicked, this wicked person who uses their tongue deceitfully and uses their tongue to destroy will be completely and thoroughly judged by God. And when they are so thoroughly judged by God, this is going to be an object lesson to the righteous. Whenever you see the wicked person who perishes in their wickedness, let that be a lesson to you. Let it be a lesson that that path does not pay off. That is the road to destruction. The righteous will see it in fear. Life is too short to make every mistake yourself. Learn from the mistakes of others. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him. Behold the man who has not made God his refuge and is trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil. Now let me read you a verse from Proverbs. Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Does it sound like... Verse 6 is calling for that. Is verse 6 calling for a behavior that's out of line for Proverbs 24 is still in the Old Testament. Even these people. And is it out of line for Christians? Listen, both of these verses are in the Bible. And we need both of them. I know that I talked to some Christians I talked to a Christian who was mocking this and and I understand where he is coming from believe me but I also understood where other people were coming from I can remember the day they found Saddam Hussein cowering 
in Iraq. And they found him. And a lot of people said, I feel sorry for him. And I can remember a Christian coming to me who had a background in law enforcement who said, can you believe that? And I said, listen. I said, I agree with you that he's going to deserve what's going to happen to him. And there is rejoicing in my heart that he's getting what he deserves. But to see the end road of the wicked, to see it, yeah, I do understand sympathy. Even though they deserve what they get, even though they deserve it, even though I think they should get it, I do understand it. I do understand feeling sorry for the person who finally they're called to account for their wickedness. I think both are in the Bible. But is there a place is there a place for 52.6? 52.6 tells us that the righteous laughs. I, I want to tell you there are three times in the Psalms this same word is used to describe God laughing at the wicked. Psalm 2 verse 4, the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs. You see the same thing in 37 verse 13 when the wicked are shooting at the righteous and spying upon the righteous. The Lord laughs at them for He knows their day is coming. In Psalm 59 verse 8, you see that same word used. All of these are used to describe God's responses to the wicked. Can we not share in His response? Can we not share in God's response? Is there a part of us that grieves at such a disaster of a human life that's headed for hell like a Hussein? Yes. But is there a part of us that rejoices and laughs and says the sinner cannot get away with it? Yeah. I I can understand both. And and in Revelation 19 in verses 1 through 6 The only time the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament is in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 6 and it's used four times and the reason hallelujah is being shouted is because the great harlot has gone up in smoke because it's been judged. There is celebration when wickedness is put down and judge. So the righteous will see it and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who has not made God his refuge, but he trusted, 
He trusted in the abundance of His riches. That word trust in verse 7 is an important word. It's going to be used again in verse 8. In verse 8, I trust in the loving kindness of the Lord. But in contrast to trusting in the loving kindness of the Lord, in verse 8, some trusted in the abundance of riches in verse 7. You remember when Jesus was confronted in Luke 12 by a man who says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He said, who made me a judge and arbiter over such things among you? Not even when one has an abundance does life consist of his possessions. Not even if you have great wealth. Not, that is not the meaning of life. Here, this wicked man has trusted in the abundance of his riches. And there is a contrast between the wicked who trust in themselves and their resources and the righteous who trust in God's loving kindness. And it's calling us, choose life, don't choose the way of death. Verse 7. See the word refuge? I know I've got writing all over here. Verse 7. The word refuge. It is a noun it is, or it's a participle thing. Um... But it is a form of the same word. It's from the same word that's translated strong. He was strong later in verse 7. And so he is strong in his desires, but he has not made the Lord his strength. There's a contrast there that the original reader would have clearly seen. Verse 8, But as for me, I am as a green olive tree in the, in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I am a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, this is not the only kind of tree the righteous is compared to. This is not the only kind of tree the righteous is compared to in God's house. We talked about Psalm 1-3 earlier. The righteous is like a tree planted beside the waters. It brings forth its leaves in its season, and whatever it does, it prospers. Psalm 92, verses 12 and 13, The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of the Lord. That's Psalm 92, and verses 12 and 13. In Jeremiah 11, in verse 16, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form with the noise of a great tumult, and he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. Now, did y'all see any olive trees when you were, were in Palestine? Did they tell you all this because Josiah and Nathan brought back news to me of this? Because this was 
something I didn't know. You can't eat the olives off the tree. Did they tell you that? No, he didn't say that. Okay. I want my money back. Yeah, you do. You need, you need your money back. He said you can't eat it directly off the tree. That it's poisonous. That it has to be treated for a year before they make that edible. Now, I just want to know who discovered that. Uh, <laughs> but, and how they ask him a question. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, but anyway, that's, that's not my main point. But my main point is this. My main point is this. The um, olive tree can produce six gallons of oil a year. Now that's pretty important. And do you know this is even more impressive? You know they can live up to 1,000 years. Now think about that being used as a picture here. In contrast to the wicked who's going to be brought down, snatched up, torn away, and uprooted. The righteous are like a green olive tree. Green shows its fruitfulness or its, its healthiness. Um, and it's a healthy tree a green olive tree in God's house that is the contrast of the righteous versus the uprooted wicked and also he uses the term I will trust in the loving kindness of the Lord forever in verse, in verse 9 he's again going to talk about giving thanks forever back in verse 7 God will break down the wicked forever it's a different word for forever but the point is while God's going to break down the wicked he is going to trust in God's loving kindness forever tree of life good point good point from Genesis to Revelation this theme of a tree and a picture of life and fruitfulness good point I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. And of course there's a connection between the word loving kindness and the word godly ones um, that, that they are they're connected words. But, but anyway the, the godly ones are those who trust in God's loving kindness. But I will give you thanks forever. The evil man opened the psalm by boasting, by rejoicing in evil. And the righteous man closes the psalm with giving thanks to the Lord. Now tell me what you've got there as far as questions or comments. First, just on the text. Anything? Okay, let's go to uh, applying this to Christ. Applying this to Christ. How does Jesus fulfill Psalm 52? Now, this is going to be a little bit harder than some. I couldn't help but think of verses 6 and 7 here, uh, them laughing at Jesus. I mean, here's the opposite. Here's a righteous man, and uh, they are yeah. ridiculing him. 
and build on that, yeah. Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living. Okay, very good. And very good. He trusted. He was he was he was uh, proclaimed to be one who trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Okay. Matthew 27. Jesus mocked and laughed at. Jesus cut off from the land of the living, and that is in Isaiah 53, I believe, verse 8. It uses that. So, Jesus experienced the judgment that this speaks of the wicked. Could that be because he bore our sins, <coughs> carried our sorrows? Those are good points you're making. Very good point. What else? Um, I thought it was interesting that here it's a bad thing that their tongues are razors. That Jesus in Revelation has a tongue like a sword. It's like the positive fulfillment. Okay. Does it positively? I would also say uh, your point there is very good about how their tongues were weapons. Jesus experienced the brunt of that too, didn't he? Um, you know, they are stirring up the crowds and asking for his death. So Jesus experienced that. Um, so Jesus was a victim of this. Jesus did not practice that in the sense that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, but was committing his case to him who judges righteously. It's almost as if he was trusting in the loving kindness of the Lord, like verse 8 says. So, so, so they used their tongues as weapons against him. He did not use his tongue as a weapon against them, and yet his words are sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, uh, in Hebrews 4 in verse 12. When I finish this, Christy or Isaiah, y'all take a picture of it because I want to add all these things to my notes. Um, but what else? David? Verse 1 talks about the loving kindness of God endures all day long. And yes. when I think of Jesus, I, th I certainly think of the things he endured. And by doing that, he demonstrated his loving kindness for us. And that loving kindness endures all day long is said in the midst of the evil man boasting of his evil. And isn't that what we have on the cross? That while we have them 
even mocking and ridiculing him as he is dying. On the cross, you see the greatest illustration of God's loving kindness and God's mercy all day long. It endures while man's sin reaches its height. Yeah, that is good. It's a good that contrast is good. What else? I think we could probably add that thing I applied. Jesus is pictured, Jesus is God, but Jesus is also pictured as trusting God. And you see that picture in 1 Peter 2, 23 that I just wrote on the board a moment ago. 1 Peter 2, 23. Bob? It's a little bit of a reach, but verse 7 is not about Jesus as so much as it would be about the Jews. Yes. Uh, yeah, his... There's a, allegorically, I think, that they would not make God his refuge their refuge. Uh, they trusted in the abundance of their riches. Well, their riches were their place and nation mm-hmm. and the temple where mm-hmm. they thought what they thought they had that yeah. they did not have at all. That is a good point. And was strong in his evil. evil. They were absolutely uh, intent on uh, doing away with it. That would be true of the nation as a whole. It would be true of the religious leaders right. among them. The ones who had a part in his destruction and I'll write a little higher so that we can see it but um, they trusted in their riches and they did not make God their refuge and as a result they experienced utter disaster Judas too what was that? Judas the thief trusting in his riches. Good point. Judas does the same thing in uh, Matthew 27, 3 through 5, eventually throwing away those 30 pieces of silver. 26, 14 through 16, he has the 30 pieces of silver and then he throws it at their feet and says, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. You'll do very well with this and I always get ideas that that I didn't have coming in and so I appreciate it and um, one writer the only writer I saw addressing this was Tremper Longman he said uh, Jesus is attacked by wicked uh, agents but he puts his hope in God and although he suffers death is ultimately victorious like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. So eventually he overcomes in spite of the fact appearances may not look like that in verses 6 and 7. He overcomes. But thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. Isaiah, you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Yes. Let me just observe something. Okay. The first time that I was sort of taken by this idea of somebody rejoicing over the death of somebody that was wicked. Uh, you remember when Ted Bundy was being led to, to his death in the electric chair, 
yeah. people gathered in groups yeah. and they they were celebrating and yeah. they, they were a raucous bunch yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, James uh, 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 Dobson commented on this yeah. and uh, I, I just I, I just was sort of I was taken by that and this is spoken of a lot of times in the Bible you, you, he, yes, I remember Dobson commenting on that, and Dobson was very critical of them. And and I agree with what he said yeah. about that, yeah. because what he was saying, he said when you, and he says, I'm not there as his apologist, I'm not there as his defender, I'm not saying <clears throat> he didn't deserve what he got. He said, but when we take a life, we don't need to show <clears throat> the same irreverence toward life that he showed in his life. And we, we, we recognize that it's profound, that it is serious. For those of you who were with us in our class in Numbers, you remember in Numbers 31 that when Israel fought the Midianites, Israel was right, the Midianites were wrong, it was such a great defeat, and God was so behind this battle that Israel does not lose a soldier in the battle. Don't lose a soldier. And yet, when they come back to the camp, they are regarded as unclean because they've taken life. Even when life must be taken at God's direction, it is profoundly serious. It's profoundly serious. And it is not something that we can look at flippantly. And it used to be, too, that people who defended abortion would say, oh, nobody's saying abortion is good, which itself should give people reason to consider. I don't know people who are going to the hospital to get their appendix out and have people saying, stop, think about it. Think about what you're doing. Because you're not killing a separate living person. You know, the very fact nobody would say it was good is a reason to consider, but but I don't want to get lost from my main point. There was even the acknowledgement a few years ago, and still among some, that abortion is a horrible thing, but they still think it should be allowed. I disagree with that totally. But think about the defiance and the mockery and the evil of people who say, shout your abortion. Really? Yeah. All three of them. Just, just horrible. Just horrible to see that kind of defiance of life. And the only thing I could say, Mary, when somebody says something like that, is, no, it wasn't for you, but maybe for that child. God have mercy on them. Maybe. That's the only way they would have made it to heaven. And uh, just, it, but it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing. And um, so. We always have to keep what we know. We have to take on the, the mind of God when it comes to people's souls. Yeah. And God, yes, does judge and executes judgment. Mm-hmm. And. But all at all the time, even during that, 
his heart is not willing that any would perish. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's why yeah. we just don't lose sight of it. So he's, he's, there's a mourning that takes place at the same time as justice is Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. With God, there is, I think, a true grief that the lost are lost. And yet, there's also... Um, a mockery that they thought they could defy him and get away with it. And um, so, very good thoughts. Isaiah, did you want to lead us in prayer? Lord God of heaven and earth, our great creator, we are thankful that you are just and that you punish the wicked And Lord, in that same moment, we realize that we fall under that category as sinners who fall short of the plan that you've laid out for us. And we pray that you would help us to be better about that, that you would help us to follow your law and your precepts and choose the right path, choose the light instead of the darkness. And yet, as we strive for that, we know we will fall short. And that's why we're so thankful for Jesus, who takes everything that should have been ours to suffer, and he takes that upon himself, and he saves us. And we're so thankful for him, for the cross, for him still holding out the opportunity to get back to the tree of life, even though we have squandered our opportunity. It's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.